Would you join me as we now go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help? Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight this morning. We are asking that you would show up by the power of your spirit. Cause your word to transform our hearts. Take the blinders off of our eyes. Fill our hearts with affection for you so that we would respond appropriately to the revelation of your word. So help us to see you more clearly this morning. More than anything else, we need to see you more clearly. So do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Trials have a way of revealing our hopes. Trials have a unique way of revealing our hopes. I remember after the birth of our third child, my wife was having a number of complications in the hospital and suddenly there rushed in half a dozen nurses and doctors. And what they were asking her to do was new to me. They were handing her papers so that she could sign them in case they had to take life-saving measures. And all of a sudden, my world came very clear. What if she died? The worst case scenarios began running through my mind. I began to think of Adonai Judson, the American missionary to Burma, where after the death of his wife Anne, shortly after the birth, I think it was of their third child, he was running through the streets of Burma asking for nursing women to spare some milk so that their infant wouldn't die. In that moment, I wondered if my faith would remain intact if she died. Trials bring forced clarity to our lives, revealing the source of our hope when all else seems to fail. When all else seems to fade into the background, we're faced with what is the source of our hope. We see this all that much more clearly in the midst of a global pandemic when many are experiencing anxiety and hopelessness. But even without a global pandemic, we know that there are trials, suffering, and hardships in this life. And that requires a sure and steadfast hope that can cause us to remain unshakable. And that leads us to 1 Peter this morning. Christians have a heavenly hope in a hostile world. Let me set a bit of the context of the book of 1 Peter by looking at verses 1 and 2. And we'll kind of touch upon some broad themes and come back to it in subsequent weeks as well. These opening two verses really could merit a sermon in itself. But let me just point to three main themes. First, we get a setting of hostility. This is written by the apostle Peter in his role as an apostle of Jesus Christ during the rule of the emperor Nero. Persecution, suffering, trials, hostility is brewing and it's coming to a boiling point when Peter writes this. It was written to Christians in the provinces of Rome in Asia Minor, which would have been modern day Turkey. 
The believers that Peter is writing to are experiencing widespread hostility from the culture around them. So it's in that context that Peter pens this letter, calling them to steadfastness. Don't be shaken. Second thing we see is that this theme of elect exiles is chalked throughout this letter. These are God's people, predominantly Gentiles, scattered throughout, and the world finds their beliefs and practices strange. And yet they have been called out by God. They are the elect, but they're also exiles. They're scattered throughout the dispersion, scattered throughout Asia Minor, but they're also outsiders in today's culture, in that culture of their time. And running through this book is this theme of homesickness, longing to be in their final and ultimate home, and it's not here in this world. The third thing we see is the main character of the triune God at work in election and salvation. If you look with me at verse 2, It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We see how the triune God is at work. The people are called out, they're elect because of the foreknowledge of God the Father, highlighting his sovereignty and initiative. And then we see that the Spirit is setting them apart. This is not referring to progressive sanctification, but rather a setting apart as holy that begins at conversion. Believers are sanctified, called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And then third, we see that now those who have been called by God, set apart as holy, live lives of obedience. They have a new allegiance, a new citizenship, a new identity. And they're sprinkled with the blood of Christ, highlighting their cleansing and forgiveness. And so Peter's point in the introduction is not merely just to say who he is and who he's writing to, but he's reminding them of their identity as Christians. You are elect exiles. This is not your ultimate home. So when it doesn't treat you well, do not be surprised. And yet, You were called by God for a moment such as this. And that's a good reminder for us even this morning. In the midst of trials and hardships, we have been called out by God as exiles and strangers here in this world for a time such as this. So that's the context of 1 Peter. But what I want to do this morning is look more deeply at verses 3 to 5. And the main point of verses 3 to 5 is because believers have an imperishable hope grounded in the miracle of the new birth, we can withstand trials with worship. Because believers have an imperishable hope grounded in the new birth, we can withstand trials with worship. And my aim this morning is to remind us of this reality, so that what would spring forth from our hearts is joy. That we would be filled with awe and wonder at what God has done. So, my plan is to ask two main questions. First, what has God done? And then secondly, how do we then respond? What has God done 
And then how do we respond? So first, what has God done? Look with me at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. New birth is what God has done. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's caused us to be born again. Salvation, election, conversion, redemption. All of these realities tied up in this word born again. God is alone the one who saves. This is precisely the interchange that we see between Jesus and Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you get born again. And Nicodemus says, wait, what? I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. He thinks Jesus might have one screw loose in his mind. He might be going crazy. How can I go back into my mom and be born again, Jesus? And Jesus says to him, chapter 3, verse 5 of John, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, And the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. So Jesus is talking about spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus, you need to be born again spiritually, new eyes, new heart. And it's like the wind. The wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. But God does it of his own accord. We have been born again. Believers have been born again. It's all about Jesus, God's sovereign initiative in causing us to be born again. I remember I had the privilege of being present at the birth of all five of my children. I actually almost missed one, but that's a longer story that we don't have time for. And I was present in the room, and I'd like to think that I helped, you know, I helped in the birth. You know, I very often dads would like to say, we gave birth on so-and-so date of so-and-so child. And yet the reality is that my presence was appreciated, but ultimately unnecessary. I had no part in the birth of any of our children. Likewise, my children had no part in their own birth. They were passive participants. My wife is the one who gave birth to these children under God's sovereign hand. And in the same way, God brings his children to experience new life through his prerogative and his alone. New birth is caused only by God. And this is an amazing miracle that I just want to highlight here. That we who are followers of Jesus, who have hearts that see and feel affection for Christ, where we can behold him in his word and love that reality, we have been born again. And God did this. We didn't have any part. We didn't earn it. We didn't work hard enough to see it. We weren't smarter than others. God did this in us out of his own mercy. And we ought to be amazed with it day after day after day. We do not want to grow calloused to these realities. 
But then he goes on and he says, what have been born again to? And he lists three things all with the same preposition. One in verse 3, we've been born again to a living hope. And then in verse 4, he says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And then in verse 5, two or four a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we're going to look at each of these three things. First, he says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is contrasting the hope that we have with a dead hope, a vain hope. It is genuine and vital. We have a living hope. Why? Look, it says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because we have a living Savior. We have a living hope because it's grounded. It rests on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If there was no resurrection, we would have no hope. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we have a living hope. Our hope is as alive as it is Jesus is alive, ruling and reigning from on high right now. Now, our hope, hope is an interesting word. It can be used to convey sort of the uncertainty or precariousness of a situation. Or it can be used to convey sort of our confidence and surety in something. So in the midst of this COVID-19 uh, stay-at-home sheltering at, sheltering at home, our family has been engaging in much more desserts than we normally would. We've been having desserts almost every night. And what we typically do is I'll flip a coin. And the kids get to call it best of two out of three. And if they get it, then they get to pick ice cream or popcorn. And if they don't get it, then they don't get dessert that night. And... So if one of my children says, I hope I get dessert tonight, their hope is about 50-50. It's up in the air. It's a coin toss. They are conveying that uncertainty of getting dessert that night. But when I say I have hope that I will someday be in heaven, that is not just a coin toss. That's not just 50-50. But the reality is I have hope that I will be with Jesus, see him face to face because of God's foreknowledge and election because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because I've been sprinkled by his blood, because I've been set apart by the Holy Spirit. We have a living hope because Christ is living and our hope is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Look at verse 4. Believers receive this inheritance. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the inheritance is referred to as a land that God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel, would receive coming out of the Exodus. We see this throughout Numbers and Deuteronomy. And yet Peter picks up this language. But rather than a physical inheritance, he says, wait a minute. You guys are exiles and strangers. This is not your ultimate home. But you have an inheritance that awaits you. An inheritance that's not going to fade like a land that will get stolen or conquered. But you have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. A heavenly country. It's actually described a little bit further in Hebrews 11. that Talking about the hall of faith. All those who longed not for a physical land, but a heavenly one. It says this in Hebrews 11, verse 13. They all died in faith, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. So Moses and Abraham and David and all those who came before are longing not ultimately for physical land that they would take possession of. But they were longing for spiritual inheritance. A heavenly land, a heavenly country that they would take hold of. And this is a good reminder for us this morning. We are strangers and exiles here wherever we may live. Many of our global partners have had to leave their countries to come back to this one. And some have remained. And yet nonetheless, for all of us, wherever we may find ourselves, we are not primarily citizens of this country. Our allegiances aren't mainly to an earthly kingdom. We labor not mainly to advance a particular political agenda. Our citizenship, brothers and sisters, is in heaven. We long not ultimately to be accepted by the culture around us so that we would get their stamp of approval so that our rules would rule the day here in this country or another. But our desire is that we would be with Jesus in heaven for a spiritual country, a heavenly country. That is our inheritance. Now he uses three adjectives to describe this inheritance. Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's just really amazing that he speaks of this inheritance in these three different ways to highlight how good of an inheritance this truly is. First, our inheritance will not spoil. It's imperishable. It doesn't have a shelf life. It won't go stale. It won't mold. It will never expire and it doesn't turn sour. Compare that even to our lives. We are like grass that grows and then withers. And yet, ultimately, our inheritance is imperishable. In the news this week, I read that millions of, many dairy farmers are dumping millions of gallons of milk down the drain because it's perishable. And the, the supply, the demand for it has dried up in school cafeterias and restaurants. And so they have all of this extra milk and they need to dump it because if you don't use it, you lose it. Compare that to our heavenly inheritance that is imperishable. Secondly, it's undefiled. It won't get stained. won't get contaminated. It won't get infected. It won't get ruined. This is the same word used to denote Jesus' sinlessness in Hebrews 7.26 where it says we have a high priest who is unstained by sin. It's undefiled. If I gave you something and said I coughed on it, you wouldn't want it anymore. Or the worst thing is when you buy something and you get home and you open it up and you realize it's used. Someone else played with it and then returned it. Nothing more frustrating. And then unfading. This inheritance doesn't lose its luster and beauty, doesn't diminish in value. It's immune to inflation or currency manipulation or changes in the stock market. Whatever it may be, it is unfading. Can you imagine something that is unfading that actually gets better with age as you anticipate and wait for it there are very few things such as that I remember as a kid 
I played video games like Super Mario Brothers and Street Fighter, and they were wonderful games that I really enjoyed. And so uh, maybe about a year ago with my brother, we, on a family vacation, he had something called an emulator where you could go back and play all those games. And after about five minutes of playing those games, I realized these games haven't aged well. They're not fun anymore. The graphics are terrible. The gameplay is simplistic. These things have faded. Not so with our inheritance awaiting us in heaven. In fact, the hope of the resurrection, our eternal life with Jesus, gets only better and better and better each and every single day. Every moment we get closer to eternity with Jesus. And as we age, we realize that this world has nothing ultimately to offer us. And we long to be with Christ. It is far better to be with Christ than to remain To live is Christ, to die is gain. Thirdly, he says, you've been born again to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Now this very often inheritance is a future salvation that will be revealed in the last time. The New Testament can speak of salvation in both the present tense as well as the future tense. So like in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it says, you have been saved through faith. You have been saved. That's a reality that's already taken place. But it can also speak of it in a future sense. Your salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So God not only keeps us and protects us so that we have an inheritance that won't spoil, but he's also keeping and protecting us by faith so that we do not fall away. God is powerfully protecting his children and sustaining them for whatever trials, for whatever hostilities, for whatever suffering, whatever persecution we might experience, either right now or in days to come. God sustains his people, has a salvation reserved for them. That will be revealed. He's not only keeping that inheritance for us, he's keeping us for that inheritance. The fact that we woke up this morning and loved Jesus, loved his word, is a miracle of his hand holding us, sustaining us, keeping us so that we would know him. So why can we have an imperishable hope? We have a sovereign and almighty Savior. We are the elect of God according to his foreknowledge. We've been set apart to be holy by his Holy Spirit. We've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. We are obedient to the commands of Christ. We've been born again to a living hope, an indestructible inheritance, and we have an awaiting salvation. So in light of these things, how do we respond? Looking at now part two. How do we respond? Peter's antidote to hopelessness is that we would fight the fight of faith with worship grounded in the new birth. That we would withstand trials with worship. Because we have an imperishable hope that's grounded in the miracle of the new birth, we can praise God. Hope-filled worship ought to characterize God's people because we have been loved with an infinite and everlasting love. 
The point is that we have received lavish mercy, abounding grace. God in his wisdom and his sovereignty has given us an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We've been born again to a living hope. And because of all that, we can rest and we can rejoice and we can sing his praise because God has given us himself. He's promised us himself in the days to come and he's with us even right now. So blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see that beginning in verse 3. That's the point. I want you to bless the God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he's done. Like Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Or Psalm 106. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. We respond in praise because God has done all of this according to his great mercy. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's like if you walk into a stadium and you see the banners up, championship banners Maybe retired jerseys of the greats of that franchise. I know for Minnesota that that might be a little bit hard. But imagine if you were walking into Boston or L.A. and you see the banners hanging. That's to give you a sense of the greatness of those franchises. Look at all the championships we have. And now here in 1 Peter 3, it's not just banners of championships, but it's banners of what God has done in eternity past, in eternity present, in eternity future. God is keeping us and he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, an inheritance that's under defiled and unfading. These are the banners of what God has done so that we would walk in and marvel afresh with fresh awe and say, God is great. Look at his steadfast love. Look at his great mercy. Lamentations 3 tells us the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies what? Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. There is a danger for Christians to grow calloused and inoculated to these realities. It's easy for us to just lose sight of who God is and what he's done. That we might look at the circumstances around us. We might look at the trials that come, whether that's health, whether it's this global pandemic, whether it's our financial future, and for us to lose heart. For us to think, what is God doing why are these circumstances so difficult? Why are trials so difficult? Why don't others like me? And in the midst of this, we don't want to lose sight of the glories of Christ and his working in new birth. That we might behold him more and more. In all the songs that we just sang, you might know the lyrics, but did you have the heart of affection that rose up to worship? We might have scriptures memorized, 
But do we have the appropriate affections that ought to accompany them when we study them and read them? And so my call for us this morning is that we would ponder afresh the heights of God's love against the backdrop of our sin. That we might ponder the heights of his mercy and steadfastness against the backdrop of a world full of hopelessness and anxiety. I want us as a people to stand in awe of God. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5, that we might again fall on our face and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I can't believe God saved me. I didn't bring anything to the table. I wasn't more clever than others. And yet he saved me out of his great mercy. That we would study God like a brain surgeon and not like a chef. Let me explain what I mean by that. I imagine if there's a chef, he or she might make their signature dish thousands of times. They've tried every single iteration, they've tried different ingredients, and they've made it again and again and again. And everyone always says, oh, can you make your signature dish? And so they make it. But at the end of the day, when they get home, they want nothing to do with it. They have tasted it. They have the smell of it in their hair. They want nothing to do with that signature dish because it bores them at that point. It doesn't awaken in them joy any longer. Oh, that we would not study God like that. But instead, like a brain surgeon that comes again to the surgery room, cuts open a skull, looks at the brain works on it, closes it up, and realizes it worked. That there's so so much that they understand about the brain, and yet so much that they still don't grasp. And every single day, they marvel at how the brain was created. Oh, that we would come before God and realize, yes, he's given us his word. He tells us how we ought to live. He tells us all that he's accomplished in redemptive history. He tells us about himself. And yet that we would read this and study it, not like those who get bored with reading that we've been born again to a living hope again, but that we would marvel, be freshly amazed that he's done this and somehow we are gloriously recipients of it. And not only that, we get to be messengers of it. We get the ministry of reconciliation so that we can tell others through our words, come and see the glories of Christ. He too can do this for you. If you're listening this morning and you don't know Jesus, we want to call you to come behold him in his word. What he has done for every believer, calling them out of darkness into his marvelous light to be born again to a living hope, he can do for you. You are not too far from his saving hand. And so believers, we get an opportunity to call others into the joy, into the majestic realities of this great salvation that will be revealed in the last days. So I want to end with two quotes. One is from George Mueller and the second is from Pastor John Piper. First, George Mueller writes in terms of cultivating a heart that's happy in God. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great 
and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord or how I might get my soul into a happy state or how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. Oh, that we would make it our first and primary business every day to delight in God through his word. Don't lose sight of the awe of the miracle of the new birth. What type of hope can withstand the trials that we might face in this life? It's this hope. A hope that is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John Piper writes in his book, Hunger for God, If you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room for the great. You can get full eating junk food, but you won't feel good after it. And I pray that's, uh, I, I, I recognize that's true for us as well. We can read the news, we can surf, we can binge watch, we can be in a number of places with our affections and our time and our energy. But there's one place that will satisfy our souls. There's one place that will bring nourishment to our hearts. There's one place that will cause the roots of our faith to go deep so that we would be steadfast and immovable. And that is God and God alone in his word with his people. And I know we can't be with one another right now, but let me encourage you, Don't neglect meeting together with one another via Zoom or via a phone call or six feet apart in your cars. We want to continue to fight the fight of faith with hearts full of his word that overflow in worship. Not only do we fight the fight of faith with worship in this life now, but this will end someday. There will come a day when we'll sing And no longer be self-conscious. We won't critique the music or the musicians. But we'll just bask in the full, unfettered, full blast love of Jesus Christ. We will see him face to face. There will be no more tears as we looked at on Easter last week. We will be in his presence forever. We will no longer see through a glass dimly. No longer will it be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. It will be rejoicing upon rejoicing upon rejoicing because of what Christ has done to save us. And we will no longer be waiting for that salvation ready to be revealed. We won't be hoping for that inheritance. We will experience it in all of its fullness and it will not disappoint. It will satisfy us and it will satisfy us for all eternity. And that's what we get to look forward to. And so in this life now, we can have a great and living hope because Jesus has promised us salvation, everlasting life, his presence, that we will be with him forever. And so here and now, 
We fight the fight of faith, informed by the new birth, so that our hearts overflow in worship to him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do that work in the heart of each and every person listening this morning. That by the power of your spirit in their living room, wherever they might be, they would experience the overflowing, overwhelming love of Christ fall on them so that they would not only know it in their heads, but feel it deep in their hearts all the way down to their bones that they are loved by the God of the universe. Though they are elect exiles, homesick for their heavenly country, cause them to experience the depth of your love this morning. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.